Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use gift mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. 
He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Attention, attention, action this day. You are listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk, the Second World War podcast with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. Um, uh, and, well, we're, this is our... Is this day, day three. three, James? Day, day three. three. You see, this is the thing. When you're under this much pressure, the days bleed into one another and you can't remember <laughs> what day it is. And we are, of course, talking about the evacuation at Dunkirk, um, the battles surrounding it, the legacy, the uh, the whole thing, the whole shebang. And today is ma- in May the 28th, so we are talking about the events of May the 28th, 1940. So, James, the timeline today. Yeah, so it's a Tuesday, and um, we've had that really critical day, Monday the 27th, which, you know, as you know, Al, I'm, I kind of believe is the closest we ever got to losing the war. This is a kind of, it's, a day, it's another day of crisis for Churchill the 28th of May, but it's also one where there is just the first glimmer of hope. And it started in the very early hours of the day, because this is when the first ship leaves the East Mole. And this is the Queen of the Channel, which gets gets underway a little before 3am in the morning. Now, it is then promptly sunk out at sea at 4.15am. However, it's not sunk sufficiently badly that that Wolfhound and others can't come alongside it and rescue every single person. So not a single person is killed in that, um, if I think if I remember rightly. But so and certainly if if it is, it's it's very very small numbers of people are killed. So um, uh, and and by uh, 4:45 a.m. the second ship leaves the East Mole, and by 9:55 a.m. the third ship leaves the East Mole, and suddenly this is. This is now, the big hope. To reiterate, the East Mole is what, a, a, like a mile long. Yeah, so it stands out about yeah about a mile out out, out to sea, and it's and it is basically a lattice work wooden structure on concrete piles. And uh, how wide and, is how wide is the walkway on the top of the mole? Oh well, in my memory, I'm going to say not more than about five feet, a couple of meters, isn't it? A couple at of meters at most. Yeah, and it and, and it's really weird because when you're looking at it, it does look quite flimsy. But actually, because of the concrete, it's solid. But so the they're solid, organizing solid parts of, of, of the base of it. Yeah. So they're so they're organizing, and you've a twelve foot tide at uh, Dunkirk as well. Yes. That's the other thing to bear in mind, you know, the the, the high tide, low tide, it's a twelve foot difference. So you're you're evacuating men off this strip that's no more than I mean, well, probably a man wide with his kit. Well, he's only kit as he's ditched his kit. Two men wide, two abreast, down yep. this thing a mile long with yep. a tide. Uh, no heavy seas at this point. We're fortunate. It's still a mill pond, isn't it? A, a mill pond all week. But uh, under under German artillery uh, fire and attempted 
um, um, air attack. Never once hit. Never once hit. The, yeah, but I know. But the, so, but this is the this is the. I'm just sort of outlining the set of circumstances. The mole is better than bringing boats up close to the beach and then ferrying people backwards and forwards with little boats. But yes. it's still, this is still a precarious option. It's not like it's not like a. I mean, the, the mole in the movie, in the Dunkirk film that people have seen recently, is a much more um, uh, uh, imposing structure, isn't it? Well, it, it's, it's exactly well, it the to... same mole. It is exactly the same. The, the, it's just it's, it's now completely concrete latticework underneath it rather than metal and wooden latticework underneath it. So it has been, it has been strengthened since. But, but the width of it is exactly the same. And it's, it's in inc- exactly I mean, the same position. I mean, it is, it's inc- it, it, an it incredible is thing. That this is the option. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. you know, it, it feels like a thread, doesn't it? That the, the, the BF's but, dangling. But ironically, it's very narrowness is what saves it because it's not a whopping great concrete. It's difficult jetty. to hit. Yeah. It's very, yeah. very difficult to hit. And of course, at night, you can start stacking up these ships, you know, side by side. So they're kind of three deep. So what would happen is you'd, you'd funnel these guys off onto three ships and they'd, go, they'd cross the decks of the first two, get onto the third one, then that's full, it would disappear off, uh, and, and so on. I mean, you know, it was it was an absolute conveyor belt. The big problem for, 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 for um, Bill Tennant and for the British and, and the French trying to get the men up to Dunkirk was that large numbers were coming into the kind of Belgium end of the, of the front. You know, the perimeters big long old stretch of, of of sand i think it's like 12 miles or something and and le pan is quite a long way down uh, and bray dunes even is, is quite a long way down um, and there were loads of men down there i mean you know they you know when tenant first gets there on the 28th he goes and has a look down the down the beach takes a little launch down and goes goes down the whole length you know what he dis- what he learns is that that instead of there being a handful of thousand of men further down the beach it's like twenty five thousand, and you've got to get them up off their ass and get them up to Dunkirk and meanwhile more people are coming in to Dunkirk and coming in so it's a, it's a bit of a bum fight so it's just it's just the marshalling of all these men this is half the problem so a number of people are still being taken off by those smaller vessels and and it's not until don't forget it's not until later on the 29th on the on this day the 28th that Ramsey makes his broadcast asking for small vessels so there's no you know the only small vessels that are out there at the moment are, are, are the, naval the, the, the navy's own lighters and whatever right yeah, right the, so yeah, not, yeah, a lot, yeah, yeah. not an awful lot but but in the order of the day I mean, it is at 4 a.m. that the Belgium surrender comes into play. The armistice comes into play and they are now out of the war. By that morning, though, by first light, Monty's got his men men involved. Um, and I also I just want to tell you very quickly um, about about an episode that happens on part of this filling the gap of the disappearing Belgians over this sort of 48 hour period of the 27th and 28th. Because what happens is, is a, in sort of late in the afternoon on the 27th of May, the um, the 3rd Battalion of the Grenadier Guards, for example, have come back from a very, very stiff fight at the on, on the banks of the Esco. And I think I've mentioned this at some point, where they have this fight and the Germans actually cross the River Esco and the Grenadier Guards then push them back again. Um, and so they've had this really quite stiff fight and they're just resting up at Plug Street Wood. You know, famous from the First World War. I mean, it's just round the corner from there that supposedly the the Christmas truce football match took place. You know, that's what we're talking about. Just down the road from from Ypres, between Ypres and Comines. And Alan Adair, who is the acting battalion commander, Major Alan Adair, because the battalion commander's been killed on the ESCO, is just resting up and, and Alexander's ADC turns up um, uh, called George, Captain George Thorne. And, and Adair looks up and goes, 
How delightful to see the son of my commanding officer from 1917. <laughs> I mean, can you Incredible. believe it? And, and they're on their way to Dunkirk. They've been told to retreat to Dunkirk. And and, and Captain Fawn says, look, I'm really sorry about this, but would you mind counterattacking towards the Comine Canal? Because actually we've now, the Belgians are out and we've got a, and um, we've now got a, uh, you can't go to Dunkirk after all. So the Grenadier Guards, who think they're on their way out, are now having to brace themselves for a counterattack towards the Commune um, uh, Canal and hold that line and desperately hold that position so that more men can fall in behind them. And Alan Adair goes, absolutely delighted, old chap. No problem at all. And, and so they attack later that afternoon with the um, second company, who's commanded by a chap called Captain Roderick um, Brickman. And, um, uh, uh, and they attack that afternoon, uh, the second company leading. Before they got very far, Brickman is is um, hit near the eye um, by a um, in the in the side of his head here by um, um, by, by a mortar fragment. Um, he keeps going on despite this sort of blood coming down all over his face. Then he's hit in the right shoulder and and, and elbow, um, but he keeps going on. And eventually, they manage to get to this building right overlooking the um, canal where they neutralise the, the MG post that's there. They chuck in hurling grenades and all the rest of it. He's then wounded again. He's shot in the right thigh. Um, uh, and by this point, the second company is completely decimated. So they then have to pull back a little bit. Um, so they, they get to the canal, take the canal, but then they have to pull back um, to the next line where there's a little river and stuff. Um, uh, and at that point, as they're pulling back, he's then hit a fifth time. Um, by this point, Brickman is kind of bleeding quite badly from his five wounds, still commanding his company. And he sits down and he can't quite work out which one he needs to dress um, first because he's only got one tourniquet, which is his tie. <laughs> okay. So he decides, he thinks about it and he thinks, well, I'll take off my tie and I'll, I'll bandage my head because that's where I'm going to have the most blood. And really, that's where I need to be. I, I, you know, I need to be thinking more than I need to be moving. So he does a tourniquet himself with his tie around his head to stop the bleeding around his head. And anyway, they managed to hold that whole position, that the Grenadier Guards, the whole position throughout the 28th. And not until darkness on the 28th do they finally pull back. And they've held the line. That crucial moment. They've held the line. Uh, and by that stage, the, um, the battalion is down to um, 280 men and nine officers out of 845. Oh, gosh. So that's that's going on on the afternoon, evening but, of the 27th and all day on the 28th. I mean, that is just unbelievable. And, what, and what's happening the rest of the day? So, but I mean, yes. we've got ca we've got more cabinet shenanigans, haven't we? Because after all, we have uh, uh, Halifax yesterday was taken into the Rose Garden and told um, told to behave himself, basically. Yes. But he comes back in cabinet and uh, on the 28th and tries again with the Italian approach, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And it's this time, um, although Chamberlain has, stuck, uh, has sort of stood up for, for Churchill in the big, the really crucial debate in the afternoon the previous day, um, Churchill has thrown a lifeline with, with Chamberlain on this day, the 28th, because... Uh, Overnight, Lloyd uh, Lloyd George, the the premier, um, the prime minister at the second half of the First World War, has come in and offered to join the war cabinet. And Churchill has absolutely no intention whatsoever of in a million years of putting him into the war cabinet because he knows that he's a kind of Nazi sympathizer and all the rest of it. But he also knows that Lloyd George and Chamberlain absolutely hate each other's guts. So Churchill goes up to Chamberlain and says, um, Neville, I've, I've, um, I've received this 
curious message overnight from Lloyd George and um, um, he wants to join the war cabinet. I wonder what your views are about this. Because, <laughs> knowing you know, you, knowing it, perfectly well what Chamberlain's right. going to say. And but, Chamberlain, yeah. says, Chamberlain says, well, I mean, obviously, you know, if you if you feel he should be in the war cabinet, that's absolutely fine. But then I would have to resign and, and step aside. But I would gladly do so, Winston. And Churchill says, absolutely no way. There's no one more important to me in this war cabinet than you, Neville. Um, if that's your position, and I completely understand it, then I'm going to tell Lloyd George, thank you, but no thanks. And Chamberlain sort of, you know, puffs up his chest a little bit, just feels a little bit taller that day, feels better. There's a, there's a, a clear bond now between Churchill and Chamberlain. Yeah. And it just kind of skews Chamberlain a little teeny bit more into Churchill's camp. This is very, very clever. Yeah. Churchill yeah, then makes yeah. a statement in the Commons. Um, Lord Gort, meanwhile, is moving to Le Pan. So he's right on the coast now. He's, you know, it's yeah. that bad. In the afternoon, 80 soldiers of the Second War Royal Warwicks are executed by the SS Leibstandarte at Wormwood. Yeah. So that's the second of the two uh, Waffen yeah. SS massacres. Um, there's a second war cabinet that afternoon and at 6 p.m churchill calls in the wider cabinet which i think is about 25 guys and that's where he does his big speech and says of course you know we must never surrender and you know it's absolutely out of the question all the rest of it and that that is the defeat of halifax it's never ever mentioned again because he's got chamberlain on side and um although he was um, halifax was chuntering earlier in the day about it the, the wider cabinet meeting where everyone unanimously agrees that they should fight on and never surrender. That's that. And then that evening, Ramsey asks, puts a message out for every shallow draft powerboat to head to the beaches. Yeah, and, and 17,804 lifted on this particular day. So that's yeah. a substantial improvement from the 7,669 on day one. So it's getting underway, basically. It, 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 it's still deeply critical. It's a massive yeah. crisis moment. But by the end of that day, Churchill can have his dinner feeling just a little bit yeah. less sick, and, sick at yeah. heart and sick in stomach than he was the yeah. night before. Well, um, now we're going to find out. Um, well, take a sort of slightly personal angle on this um, for me. When we find out what was going on with a TA battalion... Um, in a town called Harzebrook, outside Dunkirk. Achtung, achtung. Hello, dear listeners. I hope you've been enjoying the content James and I have been serving up this past year. If you have enjoyed it, and you felt so inclined, could we ask you to consider voting for us in this year's podcast awards? There's a special award that's got nothing to do with juries and industry professionals. It's called the Listener's Award. You need to go to British Podcast Awards slash vote. Then put in We Have Ways and up we pop. Prove you're not a robot. You know you can do it. And make sure to confirm your vote in the email they send to you. Many thanks from me and James and everyone at the We Have Ways team. our week of uh, week and a bit of Dunkirk the most important week in history uh, TM ever ever we're not we're not we're not going to be <laughs> argued with on this one and I'm delighted to say that to, to, to join us today we have um, my father Ingram Murray um, who uh, has joined us to talk about the uh, first 
Buckinghamshire Battalion, Territorial Army, uh, part of the Ox and Bucks Light Infantry, Territorial TA component. And what happened to them in, uh, 19, in the summer of 1940? Welcome, Dad. Thank you very much. Thanks nice for... to be here. <laughs> no, it's fantastic to have you on board. Uh, normally, this, at this point, you say, I love the podcast, love the stuff you're doing, fellas. That's the obligatory thing here, Dad. <laughs> oh, well, I obviously love you all. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, now uh, where, where to start with this? Because um, the, reason, the reason we're talking about this one battalion in the whole of the BEF is, is because it's a, it's a family story for, for us, isn't it? For our family. Absolutely. Um, it's about your grandfather. It's about my grandfather, about my mother's father. Uh, James Ritchie, who was the adjutant in First uh, Bucks Battalion. And he was killed yeah. in the final stand by the Bucks Battalion on the perimeter of the Dunkirk defences, which was covering the withdrawal by the rest of the BF to Dunkirk. Yeah. And he and his commanding officer were obeying an order to fight to the last man and the last round. And they took it literally. So the story starts really with his sister. Yeah. Who was rather a pushy lady <laughs> and uh, decided to write a book about him, which, which lionized him. Yeah. And she had gone to France without telling his widow to find out what had happened to him and had met the gardener in the orphanage yeah. where the battalion made its last stand, who had buried him in the garden in 1940 and had taken wow. his watch and several artefacts off the body and gave, it, gave them to her. And oh, that's she wrote, amazing. Yeah, incredible. And he also took a clandestine photograph of 15 graves in the garden of the orphanage, yeah. which he gave her, and are now in the Bucks archive. And they were all buried by the, by the gardener, in, in, who was the, the nun's gardener yeah. in this orphanage. It was run by nuns. So she writes this book and she sends it to absolutely everybody. Yes, I have a copy. It, so does everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> and, and she sent it to David Stanley, who yep. was the archivist of the Oxford Bucks in the Oxford Bucks Museum in Oxford. And he was a delightful man. And he contacted your mother yep. and said, would you like to come to the pilgrimage we're organising to Hazelbrook in 2000? So we get in our car and we end up in Hazelbrook and we meet several of the men who were in that final stand yeah. in the orphanage on the 28th of May, 1940, and knew him well, because everybody in the battalion knows the adjutant, because he's responsible for discipline, and told us a story that was somewhat different to the officially received account, and also shed some very interesting light on some of the characters in that particular story. Yeah. I began to think that the story was worth proper research, if I can put it like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, I dedicated myself uh, finding out a lot more about what had happened there and what had happened to the Bucks on the way, uh, looking into the war diaries of various other units yep. which had been in the town at the time. And the effect 
was to paint quite a different picture to the one portrayed in the regimental account. So what was the regimental account saying then? Uh, The thing about the regimental account was the adjutant, of course, who keeps the war diary on which the uh, account was based was killed. So the, the, the formal war diary ceases at a certain point and only a number of the officers from the battalion escaped. And so the memory of it in England was very partial. And then, of course, you get people who are um, sent back from prison of war camp. They're they're wounded or something like that. They're exchanged. So you get further Mm. accounts coming in. And then, at the end of the war, you get all the officer prisoners who have been in a prison of war camp coming back and giving their accounts. And they've been in the bag for five years and they're stewing on what happened. They're still yeah. in what happens, but uh, there have been some reports. For example, there's a chap called Michael Duncan yeah. from the sister battalion, the Oxfords, who'd been at Castle, who escapes and gets to Switzerland, gets back to England and gives a, a very good account of what had happened because the, the brigadier, Somerset, had mm. insisted in the prisoner of war camp that everybody's memory be written down as well as his own. So there is a very comprehensive account of what happened in the Imperial uh, War Museum, uh, in his personal diary, in his handwriting, which he wrote, and he got everybody to sit round and give their own accounts of what had happened. Yeah. So it's an extremely comprehensive uh, statement of, of what happened. And there are two copies of it because they thought that the Germans might confiscate one. So uh, there is another one which disappeared into Russia and then was got back uh, when Tony Blair made friends with the Russians at some point. It was presented back as a piece of history. Good they God. Could, they, what a story. Just the story they, of the story. Incredible. They yeah. compare. Yeah. They compare, but they are not entirely compatible. Um, again, you know, individual failures of memory. Yeah. The Chronicle is based very largely on the account of Elliot Viney. And Elliot Viney is a very important man in the history of the Bucks Battalion because the Viney family, who were printers, um, had come to Aylesbury and set up shop uh, in the late 19th century and were major recruiters of the 1st Bucks Battalion in the First World War. Yeah. And Oscar Viney, who was Elliot's father, had been a company commander in the Bucks Battalion, on the Somme, was wounded by uh, um, his own shell fire, of course. And then Elliot, who had three other brothers, all of whom served in the Bucks Battalion, became the company commander in the Bucks Battalion in peacetime, and when he was mobilised, he he became a company commander. Yeah. And when when on the march back from the initial deployment at Waterloo, the colonel collapsed. Yes, had a nervous breakdown, didn't he? He had a nervous breakdown. He was exhausted. He was too old. Then a man called Brian Hayworth, who was a Lancashire a, a Treasury barrister, a Wickhamist, yeah, took over, and. Elliot Viney was promoted to second in command. So he knows he knows what went on then 
um, at the, he knows at the, at the, what went on at the top of battalion level. So, 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 so you, you mentioned the deployment to Waterloo. So, what we're talking about is um, German feint through the lowlands, which we've talked about before, comes in, and they're yes. deployed as Plan D. They're going up to the Deal or the Dial River, and and they and the Bucks Battalion are depl- actually deployed to Waterloo itself, aren't they? So that which yes. is but, extraordinary in itself, given the given the regiment the uh, regiment's history at Waterloo. Um, yeah, yeah, it's quite incredible because they're the fifty-first. Well, and in, and in the First World War, so they're yeah, going yeah. over. They're going over battlefields that they fought over twice in the last hundred and fifty years. Yeah, yeah. The, the forty-eighth division of which they were part was the reserve to First British Corps. Yeah. The first and second divisions were actually up on the deal, um, and then of course the, with, the withdrawal starts. But initially they're deployed uh, on the edge of the battlefield of Waterloo, overlooking. A totally useless Belgian anti-tank obstacle called the De, de Quinte fence, which was basically bits of Meccano uh, bolted together. And all the Germans did was ride up in their armoured cars, get the spanner out, and take it to bits. <laughs> but they <laughs> and they reappear later on in Normandy. Yeah, there is an armoured threat at yeah. uh, Waterloo, and so for the first time they're facing the Panzers. Yep. And the artillery is brought forward in the anti-tank role and deployed in among them, along with their own organic anti-tank weapons and the anti-tank regiment that supports the, uh, the brigade and the division. So this is a new experience. And from that moment, everything starts moving very quickly. Yep. And they have to withdraw very, very quickly out from underneath uh, Brussels, where they are, to the southwest, and they withdraw over the first water obstacle. Your grandfather was reported counting his troops over the bridge, over the river and the canal that's there, so that the sappers knew everybody was on the right side of it before they blew it up. God. And then they're all marching back, and they're under continuous air surveillance, under continuous air attack. The roads are absolutely crammed with refugees, with Belgians of one uh, sort or another, French troops, and their own, of course, marching, riding, and uh, in in some cases um, in in proper transport, in other cases um, on various bits of transport they've obviously pinched, moving back, to a series of water obstacles at which they are told to take a defensive position and then told yet again, within a couple of hours, to withdraw again and again and again. So they're on this exhausting retreat march. Then they stop, dig in, set up some kind of screen and then then are told... Off you go, move again. Off you go again, and, that, and uh, that's uh, happening day on, day on, day on. So, they, so, so when do they quit? When do they quit Waterloo? When do they? When do they? Uh, uh, so Fifteenth, isn't it? Right. So they 15th, start coming yeah. back on the fifteenth. Yeah, yeah. And the problem and, you've uh, got, the problem you've got, is that they've all moved up in a northeasterly direction, in a in a, in a hinge that is sort of going up northeasterly um, um, towards the the dial. Then falling back to the Esco. Suddenly, they've got Army Group A coming from looping in round from the south. Yeah. Yes. And, and so what's happening is they're ter- the, the, the bit that's preventing the encirclement is obviously the coast. And what you've got is a lozenge shape. You've got this narrow corridor with the French First Army at the eastern end of it. And suddenly, you're having to protect <coughs> the southern flank. So you're having to. All your troops have gone up towards this northern front. 
to the dial. Then they've gone back to the escove. Then they've gone back again. You've now got to kind of think, hang on a minute, how are we going to protect ourselves on the southern flank whilst also at the same time on the northern flank? Now, one of the one of the things that's helping the situation, of course, is that the lozenge is getting smaller and smaller. So there's actual less less line exposed surface to... area, as it were. Yeah, yeah. Right, but then you've got the problem on the on the night of the 27th, 28th, that you've got the gap where the Belgians are going to be because they're surrendering overnight. Yes. So that has to be filled by third division. You still got to plug the problem of of uh, and the bulk of the Panzer divisions. The ten of the sixteen Panzer divisions are in Army Group A, and they're coming from the south. And so that's where Harzebrook and Castle come in because these are strong points. It's not a continuous line. It's a strong point along river features, on outcrops, on towns like Hosbrook, which is a really clear and important nodal point, that suddenly have to be protected while the middle part is folding in on itself and going back in. So you've got this outer screen, and as they're being pushed from the east, they're going inwards and heading back towards Dunkirk. But you've still got to keep this bottom line kind of connected as loosely as you can, or you've still got to kind of hold out to give those guys in the middle, the bulk of the BEF, the chance to actually get back to Dunkirk. And and and, and so it's an absolute mess up because you've suddenly you've got to re- completely redeploy 48th Division in a completely different part of the front and really quickly against the flow of traffic and against the flow of, of refugees which are clogging the road. So it's a, it's a logistical absolute nightmare before we've even got to Harzebrook well we haven't got to Harzebrook yet <laughs> um, we've we've just got to the ESCO yeah uh, where the Bucks Battalion is actually in reserve uh, in in behind the two other battalions of 145 Brigade which is the 4th Battalion the Oxfords and yeah. the 2nd Gloucesters who are regulars of course uh, but very well known to the to the Bucks and then they withdraw to the Gort Line, or the fag end of the Gort Line, which is a series of blockhouses. And then they withdraw yet again to a concentration area at a little village called Norman, which is where 145 Brigade concentrate. And there they're told, right chaps, stand by to go to Calais. So they all think, whoopee, we can go home after a bit. But then the instructions are changed to Cassel. And the whole brigade thinks it's off to Castle. And, and it takes him quite a long time to get there because the transport which is going to take them gets bombed on the way. And instead of turning up at, at about noon, it turns up at about 10 o'clock at night. And then it fights its way through the, the uh, chaos and round the edge of uh, Belleul, which is a burning town by this time. And... In the middle of the night, Somerset, the, co- the, the former Gloucester commander of the 2nd Battalion, who's now the Brigadier... He's only just taken over, hasn't he? He's literally he's only just taken over. He's just taken over because Hughes, Hughes collapses. He's, mm-hmm. he's, he's dive-bombed by the Stukas and, and can't cope. But, um, Fitzroy Somerset takes over, and he's a much more dynamic man. And he gets this ra- radio message in the middle of the night that he is to detach one battalion to go to Hazebrook. And because the bucks are the last in the queue, they're diverted at the fork that's just outside Bayeux, where you bear right for Castle and you bear left for Hazebrook. And that was the fateful decision. And he detaches uh, some anti-tank guns and, and the battalion heads for Hazebrook, 
and arrives there early in the morning on the 25th. And they find something called wood force. Now, wood force is a ad hoc body which has been put together in order to uh, protect GHQ Maine, which at this <laughs> point is just leaving Castle um, in great, uh, great state of panic. Colonel Wood is the assistant artillery commander and he has been told to scrape together a force to protect Hazebrook. And he has Belgians, he has Frenchmen, and very importantly, he has got the 98th Field Regiment, the Surrey and Sussex Yeomanry. And they are led by a 50-year-old, very dynamic Colonel Ledigham, who has, uh, was a sapper in the First World War. He's got the MC, two mentions in dispatches, so he's quite an experienced character. And he scrounges a number of 25-pounder guns from depots. He collects some guys from a reinforcement depot and he deploys his guns on the west side of Hazebrook where they know that the Panzer divisions are lurking. Now, of course, the Panzer divisions at this stage are recovering from the, uh, I was going to say lockdown, but... but uh, <laughs> the halt order. The re- for the halt order. And when the halt order's lifted, they, they take another 16 hours to get their um, cells moving. And it's only at dawn on the 27th that they actually get going. But earlier, their recce, which is probably from their recce battalion, and probably those very big... Armoured car uh, things. Armoured cars yeah, yeah. Uh, disobey the halt order and come nosing up to Hazebrook. And there is a, a, a fight just outside Hazebrook where one of the gun detachments, a 25-pounder, of the 98th knocks out some of these and itself is knocked out. And the, the, uh, the gun commander, a chap called Morden, is killed gets the DCM, he's in the, he's in the um, cemetery at Hazebrook, and they know that the Panthers are on the way. So there's Wood, and he hands over this motley group of, of people and, and units to the Bucks as they come in. Now, next door to the Bucks... So, so hang on, um, so we, what you've got is a sort of ad hoc battle group. Um, what, what would be well, called a Kampfgrupper if it was the other, the other side, wouldn't it? it like would a, be yes, a yes but if it's British, yeah. it's a sign of weakness. Exactly. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the work, yes. before, before we get into the battle, I mean, the thing that really strikes me about this is the cohesion um, of, of a battalion like the Bucks Battalion. They're amateur soldiers. I mean, how many professional soldiers are in a, in a TA battalion in 1940 in general? In this particular battalion... You've only got one regular officer. One? One. Rupert Barry, commanding, commanding C Company. And Rupert Barry is, is, is posted to the battalion about a week before the 10th of May. So up to that point, they've been... Pu- I mean, is, this, is the RSM, that he, is he a professional or is he a TA? Yes, he's a professional. Right, so you've got, so you've got what, two 
a handful of sort of stiffeners, if that's is what they'd be called, wouldn't they? Like of of professionals. Yeah. Everyone else is 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 printers and but, butcher, baker, candlestick maker. Yeah, who've presumably all been all been called up in in August nineteen thirty nine. Yeah, and and and, and ja- sent across in October. And James, my grandfather, he was a stockbroker, wasn't he? So um, so it's just normal people. Um, and yet they're cohering. They yeah. they they they. You get them up to Waterloo, you get them back to the ESCO, you get them back to the Gort line, then you get them, you know, they're being diverted in the middle of the night and all this sort of thing, and they're cohering. I mean, that, that in itself is, is quite extraordinary, isn't it? I think there were moments on the withdrawal, in the chaos of the withdrawal, when they, they did nearly come apart. Everybody got lost in the middle of the night because sometimes they, they, they went across country to avoid the jam on the road. So they, they go off into the fields and then they get lost and get and get found again. So there's lots of people always looking for everybody, but they end up at the main with where the where the goat concentrates. They even find a leave party at one point sitting by the side of the road saying, you know, where the fuck are we? <laughs> 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 and, and and they sweep them up. But you've got some quite interesting characters in there. The quartermaster, Patsy Pallet, a decorator by profession, was a warrant officer in the First World War. And he's a very experienced lad. And he proves his mettle later on in the withdrawal from Harsebrook. He gets the military cross. So they arrive, and as you say, they, they sweep together all these people. And there's a, a lot of difficulty in establishing who is party to this. There were some Cheshire machine gunners, there were some anti-tank gunners, some were sent down from Castle. Um, they, they were the King's Regiment, anti-tank gunners, 56th anti-tank regiment from Liverpool. Um, they were sent down with their two-pounders and they, they tie up Surrey and Suffolk yeomanry and Captain Tremlett, who is one of their troop commanders, takes over the responsibility for the anti-tank defence of Hazebrook. Now, Hazebrook, as you will know, having been there, has very few natural, physical anti-tank obstacles. No, it's. I mean, you, it's a, to set. To, 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 this is in. This is in Flanders. It's flat. It's it's it's, it's North flat Flanders. It's flat, isn't it? It's flat features. It's flat. Castle is Castle itself is striking because it's the only hill. In the in in the neighbourhood, it's not even ro- like rolling countryside. It's it's flat, and so what you're it's looking flat. at is water obstacles. And I mean, I you know I went there, where, uh, and we'll we'll get to why eventually. Um, is it sort of like Leighton Buzzard? It's not like a it's it's like it's like a town with a railway and a market square, and uh, and a road goes through it. A ro- and a road roads go through it, a crossroad and all that sort of thing. But it's not not obvious where you would put your how would you how you would defend it, is it? So you've got to create that. Serious obstacle is a canal, uh, and that runs into the centre of town. And there were two bridges, a road bridge and a railway bridge over that. And the sappers blew them up. There was a, there was a lieutenant Keeble with his troop, who was an enterprising lad as well. He would be, of course, being a sapper. Yeah, of course, Dad. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and he cuts the railway bridge but also down the south of, of, of Hazebrook you've got 44th Division and yeah. 132 and 133 Brigades of West Kent's and Royal Sussex and they are in the southern suburbs 
of, if you can call us. Yeah, I'm just looking. I'm looking at it uh, on the map at the moment, the sort of satellite image of it, and you can you can see it is literally a stone's throw from from Castle, isn't it? It's a matter of a, yeah, it's, of a it's few six miles. miles from Castle. You can you can and the, and the see railway castle. line really dominates, doesn't it? It does. It was it's a railway junction, and and there were more railways in those days than there are now. It was yeah. there was a an agricultural railway that went down to La Motte Bois to the mm -hmm. south. And the canals, of course, filled in now, but that in those days, a tank wouldn't have been able to get across. No. So they blew the bridges, and you had the Sussex and the West Kents to the south, and also on the, the southwest side, in a wood overlooking Harzebrook, in a sort of hill. The defence had to be integrated between all these, all these elements. And Captain Tremlett, who uh, was obviously also uh, an enterprising guy, puts half the eight guns of the 98th Field Regiment in the anti-tank role. And they're facing west and southwest against the obvious tank approaches. The other half of the regiment, with 12 guns, is out to the south and is in the indirect fire role, controlled from the church tower, where there is an observation officer up there with a, a line, that's to say a telephone line, to the battery out, outside the town. And they, throughout the siege, were to provide indirect fire and in a very useful way. So the, your supporting artillery is well deployed to take on the threat. Now, as well, you had anti-tank guns. You had the two-pounder anti-tank guns, which were probably the most effective um, anti-tank guns of the day. The tanks coming against them, the majority are the, the T-38, which is a Czech tank, a Skoda, which would almost certainly not survive a strike by even an 18-pounder. Um, <laughs> even a boy's anti-tank rifle. Well, yes, but the approaches, of course, to Hazebrook are, are, over, are open. So you'd have had to take things on at quite a range with your, anti of your boy's anti-tank rifle. That's fair enough. But anyway, yeah. the war diary of the 98th Regiment records them taking on tanks over the whole southwest. The two German battle groups that eventually appeared on the morning of the 27th of May. One, one coming up the road from... Uh, more back, and, and uh, they also knocked out the Sussex Company um, in the little wood outside Harzebrook. And then, this was this was Eighth Panzer, was it? This is Eighth Panzer. Yeah. So this is part of um, Reinhardt's lot. Yeah. The, they, they formed two battle groups, each each of one battalion of, of tanks and one battalion of of uh, motorized infantry. Composition in those days, you had a battalion of motorcyclists. Yep. who roared about, and, and other uh, motorised industries, some of them in half-tracks, I suspect quite a lot of them in trucks. But anyway, this lot uh, attacks very early on the morning of the 27th. The weather is bad, so that the Stukas can't intervene until about midday, and the artillery observation officers also can't see very much. So they don't get very far. And attacking to the south of Harzebrook, against the West Kents and uh, the Sussex uh, is an SS uh, division, Verfilgen's division, which by all accounts is not a very composite, uh, competent group and gets thoroughly stuck 
south south of, uh, of Hasebrook. So the, the, the commander decides to change the axis and sends a second battle group up over the top of Hasebrook and it attacks first of all from the west where it's hit very badly by the artillery and then it decides to go over, right over the top of Hasebrook where it can't be hit by the artillery because the artillery can't see it anymore and it's probably um, You've got a crest clearance problem. And then they attack from the northwest into the town and come down on B Company, uh, which is to the north of the railway line. Now, the railway line itself has got some serious cuttings in that area. So tank approaches are fairly limited and you can, you can cover them with anti-tank weapons quite, quite readily. So they, they, get, they get stuck um, coming down from the north and coming in from the west. They all get hit by this artillery. It takes them quite a long time to get into the town. It takes them actually to the evening to get into the town from the north. The ones coming up from the southwest have another go, sort of at, at noon, two o'clock in the afternoon. They come up against C Company, and C Company has got two, two 25-pounders, two two-pounders, and, and lighter anti-tank weapons. So they get stuck there too, um, and they can't get round to the south because of the canal. So it takes them all day to get into the town, and the, um, the, the unit that actually probably does it is the Armoured Engineer Battalion of the division, which is trained to fight in built-up areas. And Colonel, a chap called Burdicker, is specially praised after the battle for his regiment's performance in the fighting. And he's the chap who's given the credit of getting into the town and winkling out the Bucks Battalion. He, he's praised in that famous broadcast afterwards, um, where the Germans say it took us all day and fearful fighting and and, and Colonel Bodeker's lot were absolutely fantastic. They were, you know, the breakers in yeah. uh, when it came to. But the everyone else position. had got a fair kicking by that point because I mean, we, we, this is. I mean, it's very interesting this because this is this is Panzers meeting people who seem to be organised, which has after all been the, the Panzers up till now have been running into people who aren't organised and aren't ready to deal with them. But if you, you, it, you know, it sounds like you've got things worked out, you've got things gripped, and you're also, you're repurposing. We, when you were saying 25-pounders, we're talking about guns fired over open, you know, uh, indirect artillery yes. being fired over open sights at Panzers rather than rather than uh, actual anti-tank weaponry. So, so you're you're scraping things together, and and it and it and it seems to work. Is the is the, the it sort of interesting work. thing? It, it does work. Yeah. Yes. I mean, very hard to. I mean, to, it, it is hard to attack over kind of very very flat area when you're coming up against little sort of. I mean, there's lots of those sort of little irrigation channels, aren't there, and rivers. And, yes. And all the rest. Yeah. of it. I mean, it, it is a tricky place to attack. Yes. Um, but the other thing I think is that the. By the time you get to this stage in the campaign, the, the um, Panzer would have lost a number of tanks anyway. They'd have broken down and yeah. all that sort of thing. And in fact, on the 30th of May, when the um, Panzer Division, commanders a man called Kutzen, uh, stops and, uh, for, for breath, he's lost about 50% of yeah. his tanks and his people. One, one can't think of the, the division being up to 100% when they attack they will probably be 60% something like that yeah and and they they lose quite a lot of people and tanks in the fighting rather like um, claims in air fighting 
claims in anti-tank fighting are sometimes, shall we say, slightly exaggerated. <laughs> uh, or everyone got the same tank. Is the everyone got the same tank. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Oh, you only have to think about Vitman, don't you, and, um, yeah. in 1944. Yeah. So, so yeah. they get into the town on, on the 27th, but when, when, did, but when does Cassell um, actually fall? When, do, when does... It's the following night. It's the following night, isn't it? Castle, ca- Castle, Castle falls the following yeah. night. Yeah. yeah. Ha- Hasenbrook, most of the troops... Uh, that are that are not in the orphanage withdraw on the evening or during the night of the twenty seventh. There is a certain so a day ahead, a day a day earlier than uh, Castle. A day earlier than Castle, they've run out of ammunition. Uh, the 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 communications with battalion corps have all been disrupted by Germans infiltrating into the town, and there is a an area of greyness about whether or not uh, Brian Hayworth had said, OK, chaps, we've had it. We'll stay here and we'll cover your withdrawal. You go out into the night. The official account is that he did actually release everybody. That didn't mean that Rupert Barry in C Company did the same. He hung on until much later. And with the quartermaster, he withdrew south into the area occupied by the West Kents, down to a village about five miles outside Hazebrook called La Motte Bois. And here the West Kents were in trouble. They were being attacked by the Verfugens division who got themselves organised and they were being pushed back. And the quartermaster with the drivers and the cooks and the bottle washers from, from Biechelon, um, he, he fixes bayonets. He's a First World War man so he knows about counterattacks and he takes them in and he drives the Germans out of the village, for which he gets the military cross um, from the, from, on the recommendation of the Colonel of the 5th Royal West Kents. And he actually escapes. He walks all the bloody way to Dunkirk and escapes God, uh, with man. his drivers and his bottle washers. And he picks up various other elements of the battalion on the way, all, all of whom are walking to Dunkirk, basically along with the sappers and, and the other survivors. So in battalion headquarters, you've got Hayworth, you've got Viney, and you've got various other officers and soldiers who've come in. They've been pushed in and they, they, they're not going to go. They're going to stick, stick with the CO. And they're overnight in, in the uh, orphanage. Now, the orphanage is a very big building. Yes, it's an imposing uh, vic- very Victorian imposing. building with sort of flint uh, walls, isn't it? And uh, yeah. uh, arch, sort of Roman-style arches in heavy stone. And it's sort of imposing French civic building. If people are familiar with that, that kind of uh, uh, 19th century architecture, you know, proper French state architecture to... to, to, to uh, and, and, it, and it's... It's it's off the town square, isn't it? So you've got the main drag, and it's it's in a, it's on a road off off there, isn't it? If, if I recall, yes, it is. Yeah, it is. It has, but 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 it had a high wall around it, with huge railings. So for infantry to get in, it had a big wall at the back. Of course, being a nunnery, gentlemen were not allowed in anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so so to protect the nuns' virtue. You had very high walls all round, including at the back. And in fact, they'd, they'd had to hack um, a hole in the wall at the back to get the, the battalion headquarters transport 
you know, the mortars and the signals truck and the ammunition and all that sort of thing into the garden. The garden's quite big. The garden's an acre plus. Um, and the, the nuns themselves have got a walled garden, which was a sort of herd garden, uh, which, which where they could exercise without being overlooked by anybody. Uh, and the kids, the, the girls in the orphanage would have played in, in the orphanage garden. Um, and they're in there. And the other thing about it is it's tall enough to for you to be able to see from the roof over all, all, all the, the approaches to the west, which is why partly why they picked it, of course. And at one stage in the battle, some foolish Germans set up a battery of guns outside the town and they dragged two Vickers machine guns up onto the roof and they absolutely paced them um, because these unsuspecting Germans think their mates have taken the town and there they suddenly hosed down by, by two Vickers worked by the, machine, the old machine gun company from High Wycombe. So that's part of, the, part of the story. So anyway, here they are. The Germans don't fight at night. They're knackered too. So during the night, various patrols are sent out and people try to find other elements of the battalion in and around the town. They, they, they look for the Bieschlau, but that, that is now gone. And one of the patrols succeeds under the intelligence officer, a man called Michael Stebbings. And the other one runs into the Germans and the officer in charge is killed. They realise by that time that they're on their own. And... Uh, next day, in the morning, uh, the weather better so that uh, they can be bombarded from the air and from, by, by mortars and artillery. And that continues. And then the Germans start fighting their way through the streets towards, towards the orphanage. And from the orphanage, they hold them off with their anti-tank guns, their, their boys' anti-tank rifles, with their brands and so on. And the Germans are very hesitant about getting near. They put some carriers across the roads as anti-tank blocks. They knock out a couple of tanks. Um, the regimental sergeant major is, is recorded as hopping on top of one and dropping a great grenade down its um, turret. Um, so they're, they're, they're a determined lot. And they've got about 50 wounded in the cellars uh, with the doctor. And he's uh, looking after them. And eventually, eventually in the evening, the commanding officer um, goes out to see if there's someone else, somewhere else they can go. But he's shot crossing the road. And eventually... They decide they've had it, the place is burning, the tanks standing in the street outside, shooting big holes in it. So Viney takes them into the nun's closed garden and, and says, OK, chaps, we'll try hiding here until dark and then we'll try and get away. But a German looks down into the garden quite late at night and sees them all in there and throws a grenade in and calls his mates and Viney has to surrender. By which time your grandfather, who I don't think wanted to surrender, uh, has been killed 
running around with a Bren gun, is the story, and various other individuals, including the carrier commander, a chap called John Vickers, has also nipped out. And he goes out with the French interpreter, who they've had with them the whole time, who is actually an Alsatian Jew, so he's not that keen on being caught by the Germans. Um, and they, both of them speak German, they, they creep out of the hole in the wall, they find themselves facing a German tank, it can't depress its guns low enough to get them, and they run away. And they're on the loose for three or four days, and they get picked up. Because they both speak German, they're picked up and given quite a good time. They're fed and they have uh, several jokes with, with the Germans, and uh, they're taken off to a prisoner war camp, but they don't have the rough time everybody else is, is having who's been captured, being marched for miles without any food, having all their watches and things pinched, and, uh, and, and being kicked and spat at by uh, various rather second-rate German troops. Uh, and, and then, of course, they end up in, in, in um, Bavaria, in, in a prisoner war camp, in an officer lager, um, and that that's another story. So wow, God, what incredible, amazing, incredible dad. Yeah, that is an absolutely amazing story. What happens to the wounded? The doc, the doctor comes out, uh, having been in the cellar the whole time. The place is on fire, and and beginning to fall in. So actually, the, the Germans help him take the wounded out, um, including the regimental sergeant major, who by this time has has been wounded, and they get them out perhaps half a dozen, uh, when, the, when the ceiling actually collapses in, on the, in the, on the cellars and they're buried and they're burned. So, oh so the, the Germans at the last moment do their stuff and take the wounded off to field hospitals and look after them properly. Having been Germans and having had to fight their way into that town, they were full of respect for the Bucks Battalion and the Bucks mm. Battalion. Well, well didn't Eighth Division? Well, they, they're prof they're professionals, aren't they? You know, they're they're yeah. And eight pounds to say yeah. we thought we were up against crack soldiers, didn't they? They they yes, uh, that's and all that that's sort of stuff. famous broadcast. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Now, yeah. So we talked earlier about because I've I've been there and did a little bit of walking the ground, as James likes to call it, and you've been there s several times. <laughs> How, how I ended up going because you um, organised a plaque to the Bucks Battalion, to the, uh, yeah. to, the, the, to the men of the battalion, to be put up at the orphanage, which was unveiled when? It was about, it was about 12 years ago, wasn't it? Or longer even, maybe. When was longer it? Longer even. Yeah. 2005, maybe. 2005, I think. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Anyway, well, the, the, the old boys were very, very nice to us because of your grandfather's story. Uh, and they'd all known him, obviously. They said it would be jolly nice if a plaque were put up to the memory of those who defended this place, did what they were supposed to do, was to hold up 8th Panzer from cutting across round Hasebrook and cutting the lines of communication along which the BEF was retreating. Because the German 8th Panzer could not resist trying to seize Hasebrook because they thought GHQ was there. So they were offensively distracted. Mm. And the same applies to Six Panzer and Castle, because, of course, GHQ was going to move to Castle, but never did. Um, but they thought it was going to, apart from the fact, of course, that Castle being high ground is going to fascinate soldiers anyway, because they see it as a place 
from which they can observe. So we, we, we set up a fund and, we, and it was set up by the friends of the Oxenbucks Museum with dear David Stanley in charge. We collected a whole lot of money and one of the officers, the ex-officers, who worked for the National Trust, got the most beautiful plaque cast in bronze and we stuck it on the wall of the school which has replaced the orphanage. And the school is much smaller um, and it's a school for naughty boys. And it was a, a, <laughs> an extraordinary memorable, memorable day and to have mum there and uh, with, the, with the Green Jackets who are what the Bucks Battalion have become was yes, it was a very very moving day, and um, you did a you did an extraordinary effort in organising that, Dad. Um, we I think we've we 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 are out we're out of time, aren't we, James? Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> but I've got to say, uh, um, th- that is a, a that is a fantastic story, and it's one that I didn't know in in anything like that level of detail. And I'm um, I'm really glad to have heard it. I thought that was absolutely fantastic. Yes, thanks. Thank you. That's very nice. And obviously, of you. your grandfather Al, was a was an incredibly brave man. It so sounds. It him. certainly does. Every every time I hear, I mean, I've heard bits and pieces, and it, it all coalesces together. And you think, God, uh, uh, what an extraordinary! And also, the basic the last two weeks of his life. We're an extra, absolutely extraordinary time. Thank you so much, Dad. Okay. Um, uh, a pleasure. Uh, we will. What we'll do is when this when this goes out, I'm sure people will start asking questions about it on Twitter and on our and our Patreon pat, uh, uh, site. So we may have to come to you for detail and uh, explanations and further yeah. elucidation yeah, of the story of the Bucks Battalion. But thank you so much for giving us your time. Thanks, Dad. Um, it's been absolutely. Uh, uh, it's a. An extraordinary story. Thank you very much. It really is. It yep. really is. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Cheerio. Bye.